Welcome to the next episode of Barbell Nerds Podcast. We have a guest who probably doesn't need any introduction at all. We've got Christian Thibodeau. Um, Christian, really appreciate you taking the time to have a chat with Sean and I. Um, so I'll just let you introduce yourself since nobody knows Christian Thibodeau better than Christian Thibodeau. So yeah, give us a little background. Um, and nobody hates talking about Christian Thibodeau more than Christian Thibodeau. <laughs> I, I, my, my greatest like, strength, I think, is my total lack of ego, which also means that I just despise talking about myself or anything I've done. Uh, but like just a quick recap, uh, I started out, I, it, it's kind of weird because I have like a two-tier career. I actually started out mostly as a strength and performance coach. For the first 12 years of my career, I only worked with athletes. I actually started right off the bat training pro hockey players. And I was like super lucky. It's not because I was competent. I was not. Uh, my, the only thing I was doing pretty well was teaching the Olympic lifts. And it just so happened that my, my old uh, mentor needed someone to work with the hockey players on the Olympic lifts. So I became his guy in the trenches while he was writing, writing the programming. The year after that, I started working with the athletes full time. So I was like 21 and, and working with uh, NHL hockey players, AHL hockey players, and eventually just build up from there. And I moved to the States for, uh, for some times there. Uh, and then I, I came back home when I got married. And that's when my, my career kind of switched. Uh, first, because I was writing for T-Nation, still am, and they branded me more as um, a body composition guy. And uh, I honestly believe that what they tried to do was to recreate the Charles Polican effect. Like, like Polican, when, when he came out on, 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 like on a magazine and stuff like that, he, he was a novelty because he was a strength and conditioning coach who was writing articles aimed at people who wanted to build more muscle, but using performance techniques. Back then, that was completely unheard of because nobody was scientific about training. Nobody knew about performance training, at least not in the bodybuilding world, right? And not, not anybody would read those magazines. And it was a huge hit. Like the timing was just perfect. Like the market was craving for someone like that. Uh, they were sick and tired of the old three sets of eight to 12 reps. So he brought something new to the table and it was a huge success. Now, the editor of Muscle Media, the magazine for which Charles uh, wrote, was T.C. Luoma, who actually is the main editor for T-Nation. And I think that when I started writing for them, I was just a minor writer and I was writing mostly about performance stuff. My first article being on a power snatch and stuff like that and mostly eccentric isometric training methods. And when Charles left, they, they were looking for someone to replace him. And like me being French-Canadian, very similar background, they, they, they pushed me toward that direction, which actually helped me in my career in some regards, like reaching a wider audience. But it also made me move away from the performance field. In fact, I believe it did hurt my reputation because now I was more in the bodybuilding crowd. But regardless, I, I don't regret it because I've spent the second half of my career working with bodybuilders and with average people just, who just wanted to get in shape. Now, a few years back, I got back into strength and conditioning when I started working with CrossFit athletes. And that was my, my, my reintroduction to performance training. And which was to be the best challenge as a strength coach because there's so many problems to solve, as we mentioned before the podcast. 
And from there on, I moved on mostly to the educational aspect, giving seminars uh, and working with coaches, not so much with athletes anymore. I still keep some athletes because I would not be intellectually honest promoting myself as a strength conditioning expert and teaching other people how to own their craft if I was not still working with people in the field. But it's mostly education. Yeah. Um, well, because you, you mentioned how T Nation kind of branded you as the new Poliquin. Mm-hmm. How would you brand yourself? Do you feel like you've kind of found a specific niche that you've uh, been able to latch on to? Because I've seen all of your stuff. You, yeah. like, you talk about athletic development, muscle, muscle gain, muscle size, hypertrophy, mm-hmm. um, body comp. Like I've seen you do it all. Do you feel like you found a specific niche that you are best working with? I'd like to tell you yes, because, but to be honest, once I started working more closely alongside, alongside the, the, the head guys at, at T Nation, and they saw that the, the rebranding as a Polican didn't work, we were looking for my own brand. And the reality is I, I don't have a brand because I'm a generalist. I'm decent at pretty much everything, but I'll never be the best at, at any one thing. You know, uh, me personally, my true passion is strength and conditioning. And I would say that my, my brand is I'm the method guy. Now, I don't use lots of exercises. It's still just a big basic, but my variation is tons of eccentric methods, tons of isometric methods, tons of statodynamic methods, uh, weight releasers, plyometrics, stuff like that. Like, not unlike a guy like Carl Dietz, uh, but I did write my book before his, so I did not copy him. I just want to make that clear. And then um, the cow right now. Also, <laughs> awesome guy. I mean, awesome. But it just, it's, not, a good day. it's not directed at him. It's people's oh, yeah. tips doing eccentric. He copied call. I didn't. I mean, I, I wrote my book in 2008 anyway. Uh, but when two good guy come to the same conclusion that you need to train eccentric, isometric and plyometric, you know, you're on the right path. I mean, my own inspiration was a guy named Jean-Pierre Heger, who was a, a strength coach or coach for one of the best shot putter in the world uh, from Belgium, uh, Werner Gunther. And I saw this video, okay. you can actually see it on the internet where he was mm-hmm. using all these eccentric, concentric, isometric methods. I was in college when I saw that and it completely like blew my mind. And that's when I started working mostly with these type of attraction. So me, my, I would say that my, my, my brand really is understanding how muscle works and training it with the right type of action that is needed to improve what you need to improve. I'm a problem solver in that regard. I mean, I can work with a CrossFit athlete. I can work with a hockey player. I can work with a bodybuilder because I see that there's uh, your nervous system with muscles and I'm going to get like the best possible training effect based on what you want. So if I, if I have a brand, it's problem solver. That's the one brand I would like to have. Those, yeah. are, those are the two words that really stuck out whenever you were just explaining that whole thing, problem solver and action taker. And I think that's what has made you so successful over the years, just working with hundreds of different kinds of athletes over the decades that you've been into fitness, which leads me to my question of those decades. Um, what were some of the things that you really came to the forefront of your mind? Like you said, the eccentric and isometrics, what were some staples that have been, solidified almost the entire time mm-hmm. been in the fitness industry versus maybe a, a thing or two that have been were important early in the career maybe have died out a little bit and come back late or just completely sunken off i'll start with the one that was phased out uh from what i'm doing in this volume 
Now, I used to be a very high volume and even high frequency guy. And that comes from my, my own upbringing, mostly as an Olympic weightlifter. Uh, and back then I was training in the national center. We were training six days a week, two a days, four hours a day, just crazy amount of volume. And I'm not, I could survive it. It was probably not optimal, but that's the way I was brought up. And all the people around me could actually do it, maybe because they did it full time, maybe they had some enhancement, maybe they were genetic freaks. But the fact is, that's the way I was brought up. And me being an excessive personality, I actually latched onto that and pushed that volume to the limit. I remember one workout, and that's not an exaggeration, I did 100 bench press sets in a workout, and I did 70 in the afternoon. And the next day, I beat a PR. Honest to God, but that's completely stupid. You're a product of your environment. Exactly. But I was brought up that way ever since I was 16. It was always volume and frequency. And for a long time, I believed that those were the most important. Now, eventually I started breaking down, not being able to recover. Like when you have like a real life, like, like stress, job, whatever, you can't train as much. And you're not a kid anymore. So I, I, I had to lower down the volume, but I kept up with the frequency. So frequency stayed in my arsenal for a long time. But recently, I would say in the past five years or so, I dialed that back down again to, to four workouts a week. So I would say that the, 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 the biggest changes was the, in the amount of workload I prescribed. And I believe that what actually really helped me change that was actually working with uh, regular people. Like when you work with pro athletes uh, who have nothing to do but train, who are on the high hand of the spectrum of physical potential, uh, who can like eat perfectly, have all the money to buy anything they need. Well, you know what? They can actually tolerate more volume. But then I, when I moved back to Canada and started working more as a personal trainer because we didn't have an, any athletes in the small city I, I moved, well, that same amount of volume and, 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 and frequency basically killed everybody I was training. So I quickly needed to make some changes. And I realized you know, not everybody has the stock to be a pro athlete. Not even all athletes have that because I actually started working with pros right from the bat. Not, not even like low-level athletes. Okay? So that was the biggest reason. My biggest mistake was doing too much volume, too much frequency. Okay? I still believe in frequency and that you need to train each muscle or each movement pattern frequently in the week, but the total number of sessions need to be regulated. I believe that four is optimal for most, three being better than five, uh, and two being better than six for most people, especially when we talk about athletes. Four, times, four sessions per muscle group per week? And no, so for, for a whole, four workouts. Four sessions, okay. But, but honestly, I, I use that with, with, with pretty much everybody. I, I now use a whole body approach anyway. Uh, yeah. except for some phases where we need to work on more physical qualities where I might go up or lower, but normally it's always whole body split with athletes I work with and even with the average people. So that would be three whole body workouts, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, eccentric on Monday, isometric on Wednesday, concentric focus on Friday and Saturday. If we had a fourth workout, it's what I call a gap workout. The gap workout is a, a, a training session that is much lower in intensity and demands. And you use that to fill the development gaps that might be left from only focusing on the big basic movement patterns or, or big compound movements on the three main sessions. 
because I use few exercises to minimize the neurological demands of each workout on those whole body sessions. So for example, I don't use isolation work on those big workouts. We will put that in the gap workout. That's also mm -hmm. where I would put technical work. I mean, if I'm introducing Olympic lifts to an athlete, but he's not super skilled yet, we might add some technical drills on that fourth workout, but at a very low intensity level. If we are reintroducing plyometrics, we might do a low intensity jump training on that day just to reintroduce it for the future phases. So it's basically three whole body workouts, three different types of contractions, and then you have the gap workout to fill in the blanks. Now, what I kept in my training from the start was obviously the focus on different types of muscle contractions. When I say focus, it's important to understand. It's not like when I say we focus on eccentric, it's not pure eccentric. We, we focus on the eccentric action of the movement. Could be by going super slow on the eccentric, could be using an eccentric overload with weight releasers, which I believe is the best strength training tool you can buy, uh, stuff like that. Or using depth jumps or depth landing, which is another form of high intensity eccentric. Then isometric would also be normally a mixed regimen like statodynamic, including pauses during a lift, for example, or even overload this isometric with the weight releaser, stuff like that. I have like 36 different methods I'm using for isometric, eccentric, and stuff like that. And concentric would be obviously regular lifting or a lift from a dead start, eye acceleration, stuff like that. And it's periodized over the whole training cycle. So I keep the three types of contraction throughout because they require different recruitment patterns so if you stop training one of them you will lose some of that capacity in that contraction type so i want to keep that all around also because my goal well if you work with athlete you want to be explosive in all three main regimens eccentric isometric concentric and just like everything you need to periodize to get to there you don't start with explosive work so you're going to start with more accumulation lower lower intensity longer duration work to build the structures involved in each type of contraction then you move on to the higher intensity work which will use training methods with heavier loading uh, and of course lower duration lower reps and then you move on to the more explosive stuff and to me, that means you need to periodize all three types of contraction. That's why I keep them in every training cycle. So that, that was kept in, my, in, my, in my, uh, my toolbox. As far as training methods, clusters have always been my favorite training methods from the start. Uh, I still use it with every person I train. Uh, clusters, of course, being uh, you're using a heavy weight and you do each set as a series of single reps. So you do one rep. You rest, one rep, you rest, one rep, you rest. That always made sense to me because, again, I come from Olympic weightlifting, World of Training Olympic weightlifting, of course. I saw that 150 snatch, which pissed me <laughs> off because my best is 142. So that's, but I was only 200, so I can use that as an excuse, right? But you know that in Olympic weightlifting, that's actually how you train most of the time. You snatch, you drop the bar, you set up, that's like 15 seconds, you snatch it again. So to me, that was natural to thing to do. Now, I use, clusters, but I actually change the way I'm using clusters now because I was using the old Pollican method, which was five reps per set with 15 to 20 seconds of rest between rep. And from experience, like working with more and more and more people, very strong people just can't do that. Very high fast switch fiber people can't do that. I mean, they're going to use less weight for a set of five reps clustered and a regular set of five because there's not enough rest in between the reps for their muscle type. 
And unracking and racking the bar takes too much out of them on squats, for example, on bench press. So I use much longer rests between reps now. It's up to uh, sometimes up to 45 seconds between reps. Normally it's like 30 seconds, but we've had much better results that way. But clusters is like the, if I had to point out one method that has been in my toolbox from the start, it's cluster training. So clusters, training all three types of contraction. That's what has always been a constant in my training. Even when I work with body composition clients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one, one thing I really wanted to ask you about, and it's why I reached out to you a week or two ago when, when I first did, was exercise variation. Mm -hmm. And you, you mentioned briefly, um, you like to keep things basic, keep things simple. And let's just talk about a back squat, for example. Maybe the, the variation you do for a back squat is an eccentric back squat or a weight releaser back squat. Um, what's the, like, explain all the context that goes into thinking of when to use certain variations, when not to use certain variations, how far you want to get away, like how much variation from the main like back squat or whatever kind of exercise you want to fill in, how far do you want to get away from the main lift before it's too far and you're not really getting uh, much of training effect from it? Well, the thing is that's a, That's actually a complex question. Uh, First, it really depends on the individual. I mean, yeah. when, we, when you work with athletes, you know that some people will easily transfer gains from one exercise to the other, even if they're pretty far away from each other from a dynamic structure perspective. Others, if they, they do a, a front squat for, like, let's say, 12 weeks, then go back to a back squat, it will not have improved one iota, even if the front squat went up by 30 kilos. I mean, you have all two, you have two extremes and, and you will find that those you can very easily transfer like strength gains from one movement to the other are also those who very easily transfer gains made in a gym to the field and sporting performance. Uh, because I believe that it's a matter of, it's very tightly related with acetylcholine levels. Uh, the brain chemicals that is responsible in large part for creativity and also for motor learning and also being able to retrieve stored information in the brain. So these guys, their advantage, and that's why all great CrossFitters, for example, they must have very high acetylcholine, acetylcholine levels because when you have high acetylcholine level, the motor learning stays with you. And it's very easy to retrieve that information if you need to do it again, even if you've not done it for a while, okay? So for example, if you have acetylcholine level, you've not back squatted for, for three months, but your legs are still strong because you've done leg press, front squat, whatever. Well, the motor pattern is still just as fresh in your brain. You can retrieve it very easily and you have gains because you're stronger now, but there's no loss in motor pattern efficiency. But people with lower level of acetylcholine, they can't retrieve or store that information as easily. So if they stay away from a movement for a long time, they lose it completely. It's just like some people can like, stop playing a sport completely for uh, two years. They come back. It's like they have not lost a beat. Someone might not practice for a week. Their games goes down the drain. So it's really a neurological element based on how easily can they store information and retrieve it uh, uh, without any modification. Now, as far as why I don't like to use lots of exercise variation and, and don't misunderstand, I do use targeted exercises when needed to transfer the strength gains. Now, I believe that just getting stronger on squats, patterns, on, on hip hinge, on Olympic lifts, and on pressing patterns and pulling patterns will improve your performance. But to get the best 
transfer possible, you will need a strategy to take those strength and power gains that you made and transfer them to a movement pattern closely like resembling the dynamics of your sport movement. And it's, it's, a, it's a spectrum. Like you have the big strength movement here. You have your sports skill here. Here you have your, your foundation, a fundamental movement pattern, like running, like jumping, like throwing, stuff like that. So it's close to your skill. Then you would have sports-specific, quote-unquote, movements. Then you would have power exercise, like a power clean, like a power snatch. And you have your big basic. And isolation work would be more there, right? So the closer you are to the end of the spectrum, the easier it is to transfer. Personally, I never try to transfer from strength to sport, okay? That, that's very hard to do. What I do is I transfer strength or power to fundamental skill. That, that works, okay? Like trying to copy, quote unquote, jumping or sprinting, that works. Because if your jumping and sprinting improves, then the sport action will improve. Now, as far as why I limit the number of exercises I'm using is, it's a simple fact that I want to limit cortisol and especially adrenaline production with athletes. Cortisol would be more for bodybuilders and adrenaline more for athletes, but both are connected because when you release cortisol, that leads to an increase in adrenaline. What happens in your brain when you have a potential stressful situation, your body releases no adrenaline that helps you like think better, be more discerning. So now you can subconsciously decide, is that potential danger real or not? If it's decided that it is a potential danger, you release cortisol and cortisol's function will be to mobilize everything in your body to face that situation. And that includes increasing adrenaline to be able to be aware, motivated, confident, competitive, increase your muscle strength and increase your speed, okay? Uh, so, so what happens is, the cortisol increases the conversion of noradrenaline into adrenaline. Both are connected. Now, with athletes, the, with, with bodybuilders, of course, cortisol is bad because it will limit muscle growth. But with an athlete, what I really want to minimize is adrenaline. Because too much adrenaline, too often, will downregulate, desensitize the beta-adrenergic receptors. The receptors in your body, in your brain, in your muscles, in your heart that interact with adrenaline to increase motivation, concentration, aggressiveness, competitiveness, strength, speed, coordination, heart contraction, oxygen delivery. If you become resistant to your own adrenaline, all of that goes down the drain. You get weaker, you get slower, your coordination is down, you're not motivated anymore, you're not competitive anymore, okay? So, so what happens is the more adrenaline you produce in your training, the more likely you are to downregulate those receptors. The more often you train, the more likely you are to downregulate them. Actually, that's what peaking does. Peaking by reducing volume, by reducing frequency, by reducing stress, you decrease cortisol, which decreases adrenaline, which resensitize your receptors. Boom, you respond to adrenaline again, strength goes back up. There's no magic. It's not circumpensation. You just reestablish proper adrenergic sensitivity, which you've lost by training too much in your training cycle. Okay. Now, there are several factors. Your adrenaline is off the charts right now, how passionate you are about this. <laughs> I love it. It's funny you mentioned that because my, when I, when I talk about neuro, the course I give on neurotransmitter and the nervous system, I mean, everybody has like dominances. Like you have, you can be more or less sensitive to certain neurotransmitter. I'm very sensitive to adrenaline. I mean, if you see me like before a seminar, 
I will barely be able to like utter two words. My English accent will be horrible and I will be the dumbest motherfucker in the world. But <laughs> as soon as adrenaline kicks in, I morph into this alpha version of myself. And the more adrenaline, the better. That's why when I present, I do not eat beforehand. Because when you don't eat, blood sugar goes down. Cortisol mm -hmm. goes up to increase blood sugar, which increases adrenaline, which amps me up. Okay. Anyway, so, so to get back to the, 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 Sorry. the explanation why I limit exercise, we'll get there eventually, is that you have six factors in training that will increase cortisol and thus adrenaline. Yeah, and the three main ones are volume, intensiveness, and psychological stress. Like volume, of course, it's, it's, it's self-explanatory. The more volume you do, the more cortisol you mobilize because the more volume you do, the more energy you need, the more cortisol is needed to mobilize stored energy. So that's the first thing. The second thing... My mic. That's the adrenaline. We're back. <laughs> All right. So... Pause for the commercial. You can see like my microphone is like, <laughs> like all torn up because that's not the first time I've done that. So I believe the second it. Thing that will cortisol and adrenaline uh, is intensiveness. Intensiveness is not the same thing as intensity, which is the percentage of your 1RM or of your maximum. Intensiveness means how hard you're pushing your sets. Like an RP of 10 is very intensive. An RP of 5 is a warm-up. Okay? The closer you get to an RP of 10 the more adrenaline you produce. And, and that's, not like, that's not hard to understand because on those last few reps, your body doesn't, doesn't even know if he's going to be able to lift that squat. And if he doesn't lift it, you die underneath, right? So in the interest of survival, you, you, jolt, you, you release a jolt of adrenaline to be able to get that rep in. Okay? The, the harder the reps are, the more your body senses that no, I'm close to my limit, I need a little bit of help. So that will release more adrenaline. The third factor will be psychological stress, okay? And that could be in the workout itself, or it could be even before the workout. Like let's say that you have a, like 250 kilos on the bar, you've never squatted that before, so you'll be pacing back and forth, like you're psyching yourself up, you're a little bit nervous, you're not sure if you're gonna be able to do it, will I be able to drop it back? And you psych yourself up, your, your body slaps you on the back, you grab that bar, you unwreck it with like, intent right and you do that bar like easy because you got so much adrenaline because of the psychological stress that it boosted you up but that comes at a cost of increasing adrenaline now you can also have that prior to a workout let's say you do a crossfit workout i remember when i did that with my wife i would be in the car driving toward the box which is the last time i'm going to be i'm going to be see, saying box in a conversation to do a wad I was driving my car and I was sweating bullets. My heart rate was through the roof and I was like hot like crazy. And that's adrenaline. Adrenaline does all of that because I was psychologically stressed about the pain that I'm going to have. Also because I didn't know what the workout would be. So that's another source of adrenaline cortisol. Now, these are the three main ones, those that I like to you can more easily vary uh, with your volume, with how, how hard you're pushing your sets, how heavy you're going. It's very easy to modulate. The other variables that are also very important, and that's going to that's explain why I limit exercise variation. The fourth one, in order of importance, is the neurological demands of the workout. The harder your brain needs to work in a session, 
the more adrenaline you need. Why? Because adrenaline speed your neurons up. When you need more brain power, more coordination, you will release more adrenaline to get the job done. That's why when you do, let's say, a snatch workout or after your snatch, you're amped up. If I'm doing curls, I can fall asleep after my set because it's not neurologically demanding. So, so the first thing, that the, so neurological demands, the more complex an exercise is, of course, the more demanding it is on the brain. That's the first thing. But more importantly, the more automatic a movement is, and that's the first part of the answer, okay? The more automatic a movement is, the less demanding it is on your brain because it is on autopilot. You don't have to think about it. The movement pattern is so ingrained, so easy, that for you, a snatch could be as simple as a curl. That's why high-level Olympic weightlifters can snatch, clean, and jerk six days a week because for them, the movement is no more neurologically demanding than a curl for most people because they've been doing it for so long, for so often that it's just automatic for them, okay? So that's the first thing. So the more you do the same exercise, the better you become at it, the more efficient you become at it, the less stressful it is on a nervous system. So that, that's the main reason why I don't use variation. Now you have other components in neurological demands. For example, uh, combining exercises. That's another thing I, I, I stopped doing, by the way. Uh, I, I use, I, I, I was brought up in the Polican school of thought. So A1, A2, B1, B2. But the fact is that combining exercises like that carries a greater neurological demand. It does increase adrenaline a lot more. That's actually why it works. It works because you have a much greater adrenaline response, which will boost performance. The problem, it comes at a cost. Too much adrenaline, it's like taking up a big loan at the bank. Cool, I have more energy, but... There will be interest afterwards. And with athletes, you just can't afford to train on a weakened nervous system. So let's say you have, let's say, three different workouts per week, but you also have speed session, technical session. You can't do them on a burn down CNS because learning is going to suck. Coordination pattern will be all over the place. You might actually like decrease your technical efficiency. So you want an athlete to be fresh on a nervous system all the time. So that's why you want to minimize adrenaline. Now, now the methods, I, and by the way, I, I'm only mentioning those four methods for cortisol adrenaline because the other ones are not really related to the question. The other ones would be rest intervals. The, the less rest you take, the more adrenaline you produce. And the other one would be competitiveness in training. So when you try to beat the logbook or beat your partner, that also increases adrenaline. So me, the methods I'm using are very high demands, right? Weight releasers on eccentrics, isometric overload, heavy partials, uh, squats, snatches, cleans, these and heavy weights, clusters, rest pauses by themselves adrenaline production. So I want to minimize everything else. So that's why I have very little exercise variation. So that way I'm at least taking that out, that out of the adrenaline equation. I am also using very long rest intervals with athletes, unless I'm working with energy systems. Once again, and that's something that I, I'm doing different than when I was younger, I wanted to keep a, a fast training pace. The fact is that if you're training too fast, yes, you're producing more adrenaline, you feel more energetic, but the end result is adrenaline stays elevated much longer after the workout, which will very easily downregulate the receptors. How easily can you downregulate those receptors? Super easily. The, every receptor or 
almost every receptor in your body can be downregulated, but those interacting with adrenaline are those that uh, become desensitized the easiest. And it, it's easy to understand, it's for your survival, okay? Because if, for example, let's say you are a bodybuilder were to inject a whole bottle of testosterone, he would not die of a heart attack right now. You might have a raging erection that might lead to a divorce, but or being killed by his wife, but that would not lead to any direct health issue. Now, steroids abuse over months and years will have health consequences, but one hard dose or you saturate those receptors, that's not a problem. However, people have died from taking too many stimulants than going to play hockey. Because if you increase adrenergic stimulation too much, your heart rate goes through the roof, blood pressure goes through the roof, the kidneys, the heart, the whole cardiovascular system can't take it. So in order to protect yourself against overactivation, the body has a very safe mechanism of downregulating the adrenergic receptors. In fact, it, within one day of overstimulation, let's say you were, let's say okay, you have a big workout, you want to kick ass, you take some like a high dose pre-workout, you take some ephedrine, whatever, the next day you'll be the laziest motherfucker in the world. There's, you will have zero motivation to do anything. Why? Because that stimulant abuse that directly targeted the beta adrenergic receptors, that's what ephedrine does, uh, it, it completely downregulated down receptors in a very short period of time. If you're talking just training, uh, Dr. Fry, Andrew Fry did a study in, in 2015 on Olympic weightlifter training use, and they had them on a Bulgarian type training. So basically maxing out almost every day, five days a week, multiple training session. And within two weeks, their beta receptors were desensitized by an average of 40%, essentially meaning they respond half as much to their own adrenaline. Of course, strength performance, speed performance, coordination performance all decreases when that happens. And that goes back to what I was saying about peaking. Peaking is not about circumpensating glycogen or protein synthesis. It's simply about restoring sensitivity of the beta adrenergic receptors. That's why the, the, the strategies we use for peaking, like reducing volume, reducing frequency, sometimes reducing intensity, increasing carbs significantly, well, that works, absolutely works, but not, why we, not for the reason we believe it works. Okay, the added carbs, for example, they, it works because more carbs is the absolute best tool to decrease cortisol and adrenaline. That's why I use carbs in the evening and post-workout with the athletes I'm using because it brings down cortisol, brings down adrenaline, you can relax. That's why subconsciously in the evening, people crave sugar, crave carbs because the brain needs that to shut down. So when you are in that peaking week, or peaking 10 days, and you increase carbs, decrease volume, what happens is the decrease in volume and, or frequency will lower cortisol, which lowers adrenaline. Then you have carbs that further decreases cortisol and adrenaline. And then you have very little adrenaline. So you can resensitize your receptors and then boom, on midday, you respond to adrenaline like crazy and you have a top performance. That's all it is. Wow, that's all. <laughs> Christian, hey, we have wrapping up on time. 90 seconds. But we are going to have to do a part two. And there's so many like follow-up questions that I have for you that we're going to have to 
they were going to ha- have to ask you. But, Sean, do you have anything? I can't wait. I can't wait to break it down these notes right now. <laughs> so let's put it that way. Um, Christian, thank you so much for the time you spent with us today. Uh, with the 60 seconds left, we got on the clock. Is there anyone that you would recommend that we reach out to to invite onto this podcast and ask them some similar questions or anyone that, like, you think the world needs to know well, about that just doesn't get enough credit? I don't know if you had him before, but I would go with Stefan Jones. Uh, yeah, okay. we're, we're working on it right now. Yep. Yep. I, I've yep. been put in the world. Like, uh, Steph, I actually used to train Steph when he was competing in nice. rugby. And then we're still working, and we've been working together since then. But he is... As far as the nervous system is, the guy is the go-to guy when it comes to athletics. Super, awesome. super good choice. We'll get Perfect. You. Awesome. Uh, dude, again, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. We couldn't ask for a better one. We're excited to put this up real soon. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. Awesome. is down. I can't talk anymore. <laughs> it was a blast. We'll, we'll, re- we'll reach out. Um, we'll reach out to you and get, let you know when we put it up, all right? Absolutely. Just send me the, uh, the address and I'll put in my socials. Awesome. Awesome. Right. Thank you. Take care, man.